In one trendy Denver neighborhood, right next to a golf course, we find an old home almost hidden in plain sight. Unkept bushes cover the windows. Overgrown trees consume the front porch. He's been missing for more than a year. Inside, a 69-year-old man. He wouldn't look you in the eye. An urban hermit who permanently shut himself off from society. Basically disappeared. So removed from life and people, nobody knew he vanished. We do know police found a body. A year after his family searched his home. Well, there's no way he was there when we searched after him. unsanitary conditions hindered their investigation. A year after he was declared missing. We'll be out with the health department. The mystery of Chuck came to a bizarre end. No more after the coroner's report. Who's to blame? How does a man become... He was found in his own home. home. Lost at home. This is episode eight of Blame Lost at Home. Boy, it's been an interesting journey so far, hasn't it? Since I first visited Chuck's house to today, we've learned the city of Denver was completely overwhelmed and unprepared to handle this case. The 383 days it took to find Chuck in his own living room was fraught with a severe lack of communication between city agencies and what I would call a perfect storm of bureaucracy meeting apathy. Over the last two episodes, you heard police and environmental health defend how they handled Chuck's case, even though detectives long suspected for months there was a body in the home. Right now, the police department's case is still open, and we were told by a spokesperson detectives are now looking for Mystery Mike. Of course, we were the ones that told them about Mystery Mike in the first place. And because the case is still open, we just got another denial of records from police. We did get a little something though, an actual slight admission from the city it could have done a better job. In a joint statement, environmental health and police said they are now working on new standards to better handle severe hoarding cases like Chuck's. Here's what that statement said. This group is working to create a streamlined system of tracking and responding to hoarding situations, as well as to simplify communications for the timeliest response possible. We strongly believe there is always room for process improvement, and we value the opportunity to listen and learn with every case we investigate. Boy, that does sound like a government statement, doesn't it? We want to know how unprepared environmental health really was. So we are currently asking for more records to find out why. Even after purchasing better equipment, it still took them four months to finally go into Chuck's house, a home we now know is the worst case of hoarding in Denver's history. So my entrance into the cleaning industry started back in 1995, 23 years ago, when I was a firefighter paramedic, just going into these homes, going into tragedies, seeing hoarding homes, and realizing that there was really no one to help clean it up and deal with, you know, sometimes a tragedy or um, the multi-level cases of hoarding that we were seeing. And how many homes would you say you've been in where you've seen pretty bad hoarding conditions? Personally, I've probably been involved in a few thousand of those. A few thousand. You have quite the experience when it comes to seeing what this looks like. Absolutely. As we wait for more answers and as we continue to try and find Mystery Mike, we decided to hear from a guy I was a bit skeptical about at first, to be honest. In the news business, we get PR people constantly asking us to feature their clients and news stories, especially people who want to plug their businesses. 99.9% .9 of the time, I ignore these pitches and just hit delete. But one stood out when I got an email about Corey Chalmers. 
He's on that show called Hoarders. You may have seen it on A&E. It's been around for like 10 years. He was visiting Denver for the opening of a local franchise of a cleaning company he owns. Confession, I've never seen that show, but after doing research on Corey Chalmers, I'm convinced this guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to hoarding. He sat down with us to talk about hoarding and his thoughts on Chuck's case. One of the things that happened was a lot of neighbors and a lot of family members kind of knew he had a hoarding problem, but they didn't realize the extent. They didn't realize how bad it really was. Before we made the Hoarders TV show, this was a very unknown disorder. And I think everyone that had a family member suffering from it thought they were the only ones in the world, or a very small percentage. We now know that it's about 5% of the population suffers from hoarding. So one in 20 homes, there is some degree of hoarding, and not just mild clutter. We're talking about medium to severe hoarding. That's a huge number, but a lot of them are so afraid of being discovered that they keep the outside looking normal, so not to draw any attention to themselves. As we're driving around in our own neighborhood, sometimes a house that looks clean and pristine on the outside may be a hoarding home. Most definitely. There's a lot of them within our neighborhoods that we have no idea are there. And given your experience, what's, what is the cause or what is the kind of the, the thing that sparks this behavior? There's about 15 causes overall that we see that cause 99.9% .9 of the hoarding, but almost every case has two things present. A trauma of some kind, whether that's a death, a divorce, it could be as simple as uh, children moving away to college, and the mother that was taking care of these kids and taking care of the house just lost her identity and her purpose, and so she turns to hoarding. Um, so it's really a, a trigger of some kind and depression, and we see that in almost every case. What's it like when you go into these homes? Like, what do you personally think when you see this? It's sad, that's what I think. It's really sad to think that someone's living this way. Even though these things are providing them comfort, they're also really providing them discomfort. In a lot of these cases, they become almost kind of like a sense of comfort, but also at the same time, it becomes a source of their anxiety too. It's like a never-ending cycle. It's, it's a vicious circle. That, what they're trying to prevent, they're actually causing, if that makes sense, which is a lot of psychological disorders. How bad would you say hoarding is in general in this country? It, it's a humongous problem. It really is. It affects so many people, and there's just not enough resources. And I'm not just talking about cleaning, but um, you know, mental health, and then the resources that cities and counties and states are throwing at it. San Francisco did a study uh, one year on what it was costing them. Just the city of San Francisco was spending $6 million a year on hoarding. Just to kind of deal with the issue. Yeah, between all their departments. Why do you think it's so hidden? It's a mental disorder, but it's very shameful, and people are embarrassed of it. So like anything that embarrasses you, you don't really put that out there for people to see. So the longer they can hide it, the better. And by the time they're discovered, it's to that level five, which is the worst it can be. It's very severe at that point. So I found that study out of San Francisco he talks about. It's a bit old, it's from 2009, but it's true. The city estimated hoarding was costing taxpayers there about six million a year. Here in Denver, there's no local studies that I could find. We can see in documents from environmental health, inspectors put hazardous placards on homes five times for hoarding in 2017. We are requesting records on how much tax money was spent to handle Chuck's case. We want to know how much the specially ordered protective equipment costs and the cost of the dumpster that sat outside of Chuck's house for a long time. The real cost, though, is the burden on families. Most family members are frustrated and a lot of them have given up by the time that we get involved. They've tried everything and it's just such a complicated and complex disorder that a family member can't beat it or tackle it by themselves. And I can see a lot of people just saying, well, just stop. Just stop collecting stuff. 
just stop, throw it away, clean it up, but it's really, it's really not that easy, is it? For a hoarder to throw something away, it's like asking you to throw something away that's valuable to you. We know that their brains are different. You know, there's been studies that show that their brain waves and their brain activity is different when they're asked to throw something away. It's like they're having a seizure. The electrical activity is off the charts, whereas a normal person doesn't feel that way. So we're asking them to do something that they physically cannot do. Uh, what are your thoughts on something like this happening to a person like Charles? It's really sad, but there's a lot of variables involved. It's, it's very difficult to find someone in a home like that, obviously, if the clutter has fallen on them. Environmentally, it's just very difficult for any resource to go in there uh, and, and discover a body. People don't understand that. They're like, well, wouldn't it smell? But the entire house smells already. From all the mixture of the hoarding and spoiled food and other things that are found in the home, you probably wouldn't even smell a body that's been there for a year. In your years of experience, have you ever encountered a case where someone who was hoarding did die and it took a while to find them? In a home. Just our one headquarters, Southern California office, gets three to five calls per month for decomposed bodies in hoarding homes. It's that common. And that's just one office throughout all of ours in the country. It's very wow. common. It's sad because, again, they've pushed everyone away and no one's there to check on them anymore. So when they do pass, it could be a week, a month, several months before anyone says, hey, you know what, I haven't heard of that person. Or it takes a mailman that sees the mail stacking up. To, to do a welfare check on them, but it's not uncommon for them to die alone. So in a lot of these cases, these folks just vanish. You know, they kind of remove themselves from society, they're embarrassed, and they just kind of become these reclusive people and nobody knows they disappear. Absolutely. It's a very, very reclusive lifestyle. And an embarrassing thing to reveal. Mm -hmm. Which causes more depression. So again, there's that vicious circle that we see spiraling out of control. Can I, can I show you a picture of the interior of Chuck's house? And I just kind of, kind of want to get your reaction to it. Yeah. I mean, I know you've seen cases like this, tons of cases like this, but uh, I just, based on your experience, I think you'd be able to officer, offer some insight. So this photo that I'm going to show you right now is a photo that they took inside his living room and it was before they found his remains and his remains were, his remains are, you can't see him in this photo, but they're in there somewhere. I could definitely see why it would be hard to find him. Yeah. You know, it's sad. It's really sad. Because you see that he was living every part of his life in this room. You know, from eating, drinking, sleeping, probably going to the bathroom, everything that we do in and around our house, he did in one spot. And just trash and everything went everywhere until it finally, apparently collapsed on him. I, I could see, when I first saw this photo, I could see why. Me personally, and I'm not an expert in this field, I could see why it took a long time for him to be found. The, the strange thing is if that's my family member, my father that's missing, that's the first place I'm gonna look. Now, maybe that's my profession and my expertise saying, well, let's rule this out, yeah. you know, versus that he just wandered off or was kidnapped or something. I'd wanna empty that place out. So why that didn't happen just merely by the family members alone, I don't know. And I know you don't know this, the exact circumstances of this case, is, uh, but the family did go in there. They said they went in there several times. They looked around and they, they didn't find him and they're kind of actually perplexed. Yeah, so it's hard when we're talking about families too because we see families in so many different emotional states. You know, whether some are in actual, ab absolute denial, you know, I, I, it's, it's like having a drug addict. It's like, you know, have you just dealt with it for so long that you just put up a wall and say, I'm not gonna deal with this anymore. It doesn't exist. If I don't see it, hear it, it's not there. That's, that's sometimes the case. You know, other times they've, they've given up. They've tried, tried, tried. 
why have that constant anchor pulling you, probably your family down and everything that you're trying to live for when that person doesn't care? Yeah. That's the first thing that I tell a family member. Look, if your hoarding loved one does not want to change, why are you letting it stress you out and kill your life, your relationships, and be your anchor? Don't do that. And I think that's what happened here in the case of uh, Chuck Frary. His family said that they were essentially pushed away by him. He would never allow them inside their home and he really never revealed that he had a hoarding problem. He did one time to his eldest daughter, and she knew that he had a hoarding problem, but I don't think they realized the extent of it until they went looking for him. As soon as someone keeps telling me, every time I go over, you can't come in, you can't come in, obviously there's some red flags there, you know? I would be very curious if my mom, dad, somebody said, you can never come in, eventually I'm gonna force myself in because they're hiding something. I don't know what it is, but, you know, I'd want to know what it is. I, I think it's interesting. We're talking to you. You're a guy who cleans up these kind of homes, but you're also kind of an expert in this condition in a way. I think the most important we can do as people that deal with hoarders on a daily basis, and many of them, is educate the public because this is not a cleaning issue. It's not. E even though we're a cleaning company and we want the business, of course, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. We don't go to a drug addict, take the needle away and say, you're welcome, we just cured you. We don't do it to a, an alcoholic. There's a process and we have to deal with the roadmap basically of how they got there. We have to reverse that. We have to figure out what's causing them to have this compulsion, desire, addiction, this, this problem with acquiring stuff and what void is it really filling? Would you characterize hoarding as kind of like a hidden epidemic? Absolutely. When you're talking about millions and millions of people, 15 to 20 million people across the United States, that's an epidemic. So let's talk about like kind of the process and what goes into cleaning up a home like this. Uh, the home has been there for a long time. We do know uh, Chuck Frary lived in this home since the 1990s at least for a very long time. And you can tell by that photo, uh, he's been you know putting a lot of uh, debris inside his home for, 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 for years. What goes into the cleaning process? The first thing SteriClean does is do an assessment on the home. Whether the hoarder's there or not, we wanna go there, we wanna see it, we wanna understand what's there because it's sometimes it isn't just trash. We have to sort through that to, de to determine is there valuables, is there sentimental items. Maybe in this case there's biohazards from you know, where he passed away and laid for a year or two, uh, to human waste, to anything. We don't know. It could be a diabetic, there could be needles everywhere. So we really wanna know what we're up against. And if the hoarder is still living in there, we wanna really assess them as much as the house to see what we're working with as far as the person goes and what kind of decisions they can make. If they're really willing to let go of stuff or is it just gonna be a constant struggle? And if that's the case, we won't even clean it up. We'll refer them to get the emotional and mental health first of how to properly let go. You guys actually really do a lot of kind of like resource helping when you guys come across these cases then. Yeah, we actually get them into therapy if they need that, which most of them do. Uh, we have our own hoarding support group two nights a week online that's completely anonymous that people can join. Because uh, again, a lot of people are embarrassed and scared, so we give them a place to go where they don't have to tell their name, they don't even have to talk, we just type back and forth. Uh, message boards and stuff so that they're not reclusive and isolated. Give them an outlet to talk to other people that understand what they're going through because their family members, friends typically don't. So it's really about you know these steps and their baby steps before we can really go in and just empty out a house. Because if we do that, it's just gonna be another trigger, another loss that causes more hoarding behaviors, which is what cities, counties, family members wanna focus on is get that house empty, get that house empty. But they don't understand the hoarding's gonna be worse. 
yeah. if we don't do it the right way. You've probably you've come across cases where you do clean up a house and then it just comes back to its original condition of being you know full of debris. The recidivism rate of hoarding is 97% if we just focus on the cleanup and do not get them into the treatment to treat with the underlying problems. Uh, that, that's guaranteeing failure. I mean, we're almost at 100%. So why would we even waste our time, money, resources, if we know they're gonna go right back? It's like that old quote, I don't can't remember who said it. It's like, if you keep doing something the same, it's insanity, it's, it's insanity, yeah. Insanity. yeah. How long could it take to clean up a house like Chuck's? His has houses, I think about 1,200 square feet. It's not a very big house. But I mean, essentially every room is full of debris like that. How long could that take to clean up? Um, depending again, if there's valuables and really things that we're gonna be sorting for, probably two to three days. Um, if there's a lot of sorting or if we run into things like biohazards that are gonna take more time like needles, it could go into you know four or five days. We have to remember that underneath every hoarding home, there was a normal functioning household at one point before all this started. I mean, they moved in at one point with an empty house. So we're assuming there's gonna be things like jewelry boxes and maybe wills and things that are gonna be important in this case. We gotta look for that stuff. A lot of people um, suffering from hoarding have trust issues. So they hide all their money in the house. So we have to go through every sleeve of a book, every envelope to make sure that we're not throwing away their life savings that the family could use to help with burial costs and you know, whatever, it could be their inheritance. It's not, it's really up to the family member. If they wanna to try to recover anything um, sentimental or valuable, who knows? I mean, it doesn't sound like they've been in that house for a long time, so no one really knows what's in there. Some people will sell it to an investor as is, and the investor can go through it. You know, the big money is in the house. It's in the real estate. So a lot of family members don't wanna to have to go and dig through the, the trash and clutter and stuff to find a few bucks when the house is worth the money. Let's update you real quick on what's going on with Chuck's home. I remember when I first visited Chuck's house in episode one, I predicted there were likely a lot of eyeballs in Chuck's property because of the hot housing market, especially in that trendy urban edge neighborhood. Chuck's kids got together and they decided to sell it. And that property sold fast for $370,000 in less than 12 hours. The new owners appear to be a developer and currently have crews clearing out the house. They bring in three dumpsters at a time, fill them up, and then get three more delivered. This has been going on for a few weeks now, and so far we have seen nine dumpsters full of trash removed from the property. Are there situations where hoardings, hoarding situations like this can get so bad that the house just has to be demolished? There's definitely some homes that are so bad. Usually the floors are rotten, because remember, if they're not throwing away their trash, they're probably not doing any maintenance on the house as well. So if you let a house sit there for 20 or 30 years with rotting food, sometimes animals going to the bathroom, it's gonna rot and deteriorate to the point where it can't be fixed. At minimal gutted to the two by fours and rebuilt on the inside. You know, this is what we do. Unfortunately, we go to homes where, you know, bodies are laying there all the time. We go to houses, um, Andrew just went to one here in Colorado that had how many years of animal waste? And I hate to sound cheesy and say, well, someone's got to do it, but that's really who we are. We're the ones that do what no one else really wants to do. And after you do enough of them, it's just, it's, a, it's another house. But the reason we do what we do isn't for the gross factor. It's when we go and we clean a house for this, you know, old 80 year old woman and we clean her house and she runs and jumps on her bed because she hasn't seen it in so long. She's so excited, like a little kid. And it blows your mind and you just feel that sense of reward. So it's, we get paid in more ways than just money. We're making a difference the right way, and there's nothing more rewarding than that. There really isn't. I mean, like I said, I know it sounds cheesy, but I feel like I'm saving more lives now 
than when I was a paramedic for 20 years. Because these are people that there isn't a pill or something that someone can just fix. It takes time, it takes energy, and it takes resources, and there's no cure for hoarding, but we can absolutely teach them how to manage the disorder if they do it the right way. I left this interview wondering how many more Chucks are out there in Denver. How many people, especially elderly folks, who are lost at home? We asked ourselves as we were putting this episode together, where can people go for help with hoarding? There is a nonprofit called International OCD Foundation. Google that group and you'll find their website pretty easily. You can plug in your zip code and get a list of therapists and local support groups. Thanks for listening to this episode. We don't know where this story is going to take us. I don't know if we'll ever get a face-to-face -face meeting with Mystery Mike, but we're still trying. Be sure to subscribe as we continue to ask questions. See you next time on Blame Lost at Home.